I'm John Torek. And I'm Danny Sullivan. And you're listening to Speaking of Design, bringing you the stories of the engineers and architects who are transforming the world one project at a time. Help Wanted, seeking a thrill-seeking applicant with specialized training who wants to protect thousands of lives. Today we'll meet professional rope access technicians whose jobs put them on the front lines of infrastructure safety every day. So we find ourselves on the top of a dam, and sometimes we got to make our way down through the gates. You have to step over the railing and lower yourself onto the rope and the harness. That's Mike Fuga, a senior geologist in HDR's Berkeley office and a member of the rope access inspection team. And for some reason, that just doesn't seem natural in my head. <laughs> so that first step is a doozy, trying to get over the railing there, and my heart's usually pumping. His colleague, Kenny Desange, knows that feeling. When you're going over the railing, you're not really taut on your rope yet. You have to sit into it. And so just that feeling of, I need to lean over this this 100-foot drop and sit into my rope definitely had me what I call death gripping the handrail to make sure when I sit into this, I'm not going anywhere. Kenny lives in Sacramento and is the hydraulic structures practice lead for the company. He and Mike are among 44 inspectors and technicians at HDR, certified by the Society of Professional Rope Access Technicians, or SPRAT. Collectively, the team has logged approximately 50,000 hours suspended from ropes, getting an up-close view of dams, bridges, tunnels, and other hydraulic infrastructure. Those hands-on inspections have given team members a rarely seen perspective of some of the largest infrastructure in the world, including California's Oroville Dam, the iconic Golden Gate Bridge, New York's Bayonne Bridge, and Idaho's Dworak Dam the third largest dam in the U.S. Like Kenny and Mike, most inspectors enter this career of adventure without any rope experience, with merely a degree in civil engineering or geology as the first qualification. But occasionally, someone enters the field with more of a thrill-seeking background. Growing up near Yosemite, doing a little bit of rock climbing was sort of like a prerequisite to graduate eighth grade, I think. And then going to HDR, I didn't know... I would be involved in the rope access program. That's Travis Ford, a hydraulic structures lead based in Denver. He began his career with more typical structural engineering work, which led to the opportunity to join the rope access inspection team. Whether it was spillways and you know big infrastructure or fish ladders, it sounded pretty neat for a young structural engineer, so I, I did that and joined and started working on some levee projects and some hydraulic structures and then sort of started following Kenny around on inspections and showed interest in that. In spite of his rock climbing background, Travis still remembers the intensity of one of his first dam inspections. I went straight to Detroit Dam in Oregon and that one happens to be about 470 feet high. And the access to it, we had to climb up over the skin plate of this big hydraulic gate. So we had to climb like under the bridge and over the skin plate and then get over the top. And, and there's no like foothold. You go over this edge and we put little rope protection on and set the rope over the top. But I did a little peek with my hands over the top of the gate and looked down and I was like, okay. And so everything just got very methodical. 
It was a similar career path for Jarlene Nineveh, a structural EIT who works with Travis. She moved to Denver after graduating from the University of Buffalo in 2018. I actually didn't know anything about the rope access industry prior to HDR. And working under Travis, I think the first time we did a few seat out inspections and then I seen them on rope and then we all went to a warehouse where we kind of got to practice and that's where I got introduced to the rope access and it looked like a cool thing to do. Getting out of the office, seeing breathtaking views, actually experiencing the structures you study on screen. If you have the stomach for hanging 500 feet in the air with the wind whipping in your face, there's a lot to like about a career in rope access inspection, although that doesn't mean your family and friends will agree. And, <laughs> and all my friends don't understand why I do it. <laughs> but I always explain the same thing, you know, inclusive system rope, but I don't think my mom hears any of that. She just sees these pictures that I show her and she doesn't like it at all. My mom still does the same thing, Charlie, and so it doesn't, it never goes away. <laughs> My dad won't go out there like he's had the opportunity to go, you know, that we had a dam right near where I grew up and he just stayed at the abutment. He won't go out there. If you're listening, mom and dad, there's a lot of training required before any team member ever steps into a harness. It's on this orange set here, um, which is the same line that I'm ascending up. My backup is on... So there's three different certification levels, uh, one, two, and three. And really at the one, that's essentially a worker level. So you're going in without any any type of rope access experience. You learn various maneuvers to make sure you're comfortable on rope, along with a couple of rescue maneuvers as well. Mike and Jarlene are both Sprat certified level one technicians, meaning they've completed that first training course. It's four days and then the fifth day is kind of the, the written test and the oral test and then all the maneuvers you have to go through to get the certification. So it's basically going through all of the basic things like ascending, descending, knowing all of your gear, a few of the maneuvers like rope to rope transfers and stuff like that. And then you have to show all of that you learned on the last day. Kenny's now a level three, but he also came in with no experience. Honestly, I had zero background with any type of rock climbing or rope climbing or anything like that. I just remember day one at the training center trying to put on the harness and I was like a tangled mess essentially. So I really didn't have a lot of experience going into it. After you pass level one and reach 500 hours of experience, you can pursue level two certification. Once again, you go in, it's another four day course where you're learning more advanced maneuvers and also really focusing on rescue techniques there. Travis and Kenny have reached level three, which requires more than 1000 hours on the ropes. Similarly, level three certification involves a four day training with a fifth day of written tests and independent reviews of your maneuvers. The level three duties are to be the supervisors of the job, to be able to supervise multiple people underneath you who are working on that job and also confidently put together job hazard analyses, safety plans, inspection procedures. So you're, you are in charge of that job. So making sure you're comfortable with those duties. For Mike, the biggest takeaway was simply to always be mindful of safety once you're in the air. 
So in terms of safety, you know, it's really taking the time to think about what you're doing because you do have to transfer between ropes. You've got your gear and everything. And so just being real mindful of yourself, your surroundings, and what you're doing with the ropes just to make sure you don't find yourself on one point or on no points, especially since you're suspended up in the air and Sometimes it's six feet off the ground, sometimes it's a few hundred. And even with no prior experience, that preparation calmed his nerves for his first inspection. I got this weird thing where if there's like a system in place, I like my fear gauge, I have like a switch I can kind of like turn off fear almost. So shark cages are an example. The system here, right, you got like a two rope system. So it's like, all right, we got our main line and our backup. So... As long as I don't do anything stupid, everything should be just fine. Even if something does go wrong in the air, Kenny explained that the redundant rope system provides extra security. So let's just say someone was to freak out and just kind of lose it on rope. If they just let go of everything, they're actually just going to stay in place. It's not like they're going to, to drop down to the end of the line or anything like that. And so it's a, even if you load items up backwards or put it on the rope backwards, you'll just stay in place. And so it's a really good feature of our equipment to where if you were, if something was to go wrong with either user error or even a functionality, you'll just end up staying in place and not going anywhere. It's not like you're going to go down the rope. The training helps each team member become familiar with the long list of equipment needed for an inspection. So basically we plan out how much rope we're going to take out into the field. The stuff we're going to use for anchors, so it could be wire slings, soft slings. We have Rope Pro, which basically protects all the soft goods, the soft materials. We have carabiners that blocks everything and helps build the anchors. Then, on top of your personal protective equipment like your helmet, boots, and gloves, as well as rescue kits and first aid kits, you still have the tools needed for the job. Those include rock hammers, clamps, calipers, headlamps, cameras, iPads, batteries, special rain paper notebooks that can be used when they're damp, and Motorola radios with a specific FCC-approved channel for communication. That's a lot to hang on to while you're suspended from a rope. We never drop anything. I don't think I've ever seen that happen before, so, you know, oh, it's, oh, it's no. definitely 100%. 100% yeah, yeah. tie-off, right? Oh. I'm being totally sarcastic when I say we don't drop anything. We, we drop things all the time. I think the high-value ones were, I think someone dropped their car keys or a rental car key before. I, I've dropped my notes. I've been lucky enough to where they floated on top of the water, so I've been able to get them again. But, you know, radios, I know a camera went in in Alaska. And when that happens... It doesn't get ignored by the team. Yeah, not, we have a yearly award for who drops the most expensive item. And, you know, we're trying not to get on that list, but it's, uh, it's pretty funny to bring it up. With nearly 3,000 hours of experience on the ropes, Travis has two such awards to his name. The first involved a friction device called a Grigri that helps you descend in a controlled manner. However, when you change ropes, you have to detach it. I decided to just take mine and, and set it nicely on the spillway slab. But, you know, I'm... I'm secured, but the, the spillway is actually at an angle, so I think Kenny describes it. He just said, Travis, just set it down and, and just watched it roll down the spillway. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's, that's the first one. Travis received his second award shortly after he got a new Tough Phone. They were like, you know, the newest, coolest Tough Phones. So I decided to keep that in my pocket. 
and uh, you know the harness tends to work its way a little bit so i was climbing up i don't know but it slipped out of my pocket and it landed it went down about mm, 70 feet or so hit the top strut of a radial gate blew apart you know it was it was only so tough and then it rolled down into the stilling basin and of course we couldn't go down there because they were they're spilling from the powerhouse or something so anyway we, we tried to call it and look at that and i swore it lit up in the stilling basin for a split second and rang Although the team has a sense of humor, they take their safety seriously. Rope access is a two-rope system. I carry that through a lot of my gear, actually. I actually have a backup line on my camera in case you know that were to go sailing. We have tied off, in my case, maybe twice. Heavy tools, hammers, things like that. When we're over any kind of like public traffic, that kind of thing, we'll close that area, typically, just in the case that something were to fall or somebody drops a water bottle or debris from the structure, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, on the safety side, we're well aware of the, the hazards there and, and mitigate that. In addition to SPRAT technicians who inspect bridges and tunnels, the team has experience analyzing, designing, and inspecting all kinds of hydraulic structures. This includes concrete dams, arch dams, spillways, hydraulic gates of all kinds, canals, penstocks, energy dissipation structures, walls, platforms at hydraulic projects, and intake and outlet works. Each of the 90,000 dams in the U.S. plays a critical role in the community it serves. From preventing floods to generating hydroelectric power to providing a water supply for drinking water, irrigation, and recreation. That's why the rope access team plays such a critical role, giving dam owners the detailed information needed for third-party inspections, stability analysis, security analysis, design modifications, regulatory compliance, construction reports, and long-term planning. It's all about dam safety through routine surveillance, monitoring, and maintenance to preserve the structural integrity of each dam. The work begins long before anyone is strapped into a harness. Typically in the office, we will scratch and claw to get plans. That's important. <laughs> Sometimes on dam projects especially, it's like either there was a fire in the powerhouse and all the plans are gone, or there was a flood and all the plans are gone, or it changed hands enough and... You know, there's, there's no plans. So we have to see if we can get those plans. So then we can figure out, okay, this this high and, you know, it's this material type. And these are the details that could be problematic. I'd say that's important both from an access standpoint as well as figuring out what to look for. Jarlene said they also review previous inspection reports so they can look for previous findings such as cracks and see how they've changed over time. Just so I can have a mental note of that there's anything I need to specifically focus on. And, you know, we want to make sure that we document everything that was previously documented. For example, if it's a spa, just to see if the spa got bigger. Or if there was an exposed rebar before, there's exposed rebar now. Basically, there's bookkeeping of all the previous notes and expanding on those and any new findings. And I try to take as neat note as possible just because following the inspection comes the inspection report. It's better to get everything out in the field rather than getting back to the office and trying to figure out like where this picture was taken. Because each dam is designed to collaborate or at least coexist with nature, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to design. There's a lot of different designs. Somehow we didn't like just design one 
you know, radial gate and uh, apply it all over the country. A lot of different designs out there where having some inspection sheets is really helpful. It's sort of a 3D structure, and when you're in there, just doing 2D notes on a page, uh, if they're not planned out well, can turn into a mess pretty quick. So I like to get everything planned out, either on inspection sheets or sometimes an iPad. Before heading out in the field, the team plans out the gear they'll need and prepares a job hazard analysis with a rescue plan in case of emergency. They also consider what technology they'll need, starting with how they're handling documentation. We have folks who take iPads out, will you know, take photos and actually make their notes directly on the photo, which is pretty cool seeing it back in the office pretty time consuming in the field. So there's a give and take there, you know, pen and paper, obviously, writing the rain paper specifically with cameras. And then also just with some of the NDE technology, a lot of that goes to an external memory device where you're able to save it and upload it and store it on the actual device that's doing the readings. On smaller structures, it may be a team of three that heads into the field for an inspection. A larger project may involve more than a dozen inspectors. For steel structures, Team members inspect every seam and rivet to look for corrosion, cracks, loose fasteners, deformations, or any potential issues that could impact the structure's integrity or affect operation. They take measurements using calipers, ultrasonic thickness meters, and magnetic particle kits to determine how much of the structure's material is left, whether a crack is present, and whether it's expanding. On concrete structures, they investigate for cracks, exposed rebar, seepage, or voids beneath the concrete. They look for delamination, when the concrete begins to fracture into layers beneath the surface, as well as spalls, which are flakes of concrete that begin to chip off. Team members measure the joint offsets and gaps, and also evaluate the concrete slab for uplift or cavitation when empty pockets form beneath the surface. We actually have a number of certified non-destructive testing engineers who could come out to the site and do, say, mag particle testing, phased array ultrasonic testing, also just ultrasonic thickness testing. So we have some NDE, which is non-destructive evaluation technicians who are, who are able to, to come out into the field and basically try to find cracks and welds, even get some better measurements on section loss for steel members. For spillways, we've had some NDE folks come out to do ground penetrating radar, pulse echo technology to try to figure out if there's any voids beneath concrete slabs. Travis said that often the job calls for some combination of evolving technology with some old school hands-on inspection. So whether it's using the ground penetrating radar or impact echo or one of those other items or even uh, doing some destructive testing like coring and patching uh, the core so we can get concrete strengths and things. We're, we're always looking for a new tool. So on that note, our, our drone teams are able to get like a broad spectrum of like a lot of do the digital twin and do the even image recognition and finding changes, things like that. At this point, they can't chip away at a, a weld and like a fracture critical detail in the gate that could be cracked or even look into that weld. But it is getting better and we're always looking for, yeah, the best tools that we can apply to the project to really improve our probability of detection. You know, whether that's just using a wire brush and scraper or like scanning the thing somehow, even with LIDAR or other tools. For geologists like Mike, 
Inspection is less about the built structure itself. We're more concerned with the foundation materials, so what the concrete's poured on and where the dam is sort of using as a buttress for stability. And so we're after just sort of the rock mass structure. We're looking at a lot of the discontinuities in the rock and like Travis had alluded to, you know, weathered materials or broken up sections. And so we'll focus on those areas to try and quantify those. And ultimately it feeds into some of it similar, some finite element type stuff in terms of you know, dam stability. Understanding the impact of changing weather patterns and erosion analysis have also become an emphasis for geologists. When I go out there and I'm looking at the rock mass or some of the soils that can be out there, it's telling me a story. So there's like the geologic story, which I always find fascinating. There's sometimes pretty cool features in the rocks, particularly out here in California. There's a pretty active seismic sort of component. So lots of folding and faulting. So you get to see some pretty cool rock formations. And these rocks are kind of fractured and kind of beat up. So those are the areas that we're looking out for. And in terms of trying to identify areas that might be susceptible to scour and erosion, we would anticipate to see some scour occurring during large flood events and if they're passing water over the spillways and, and trying to identify trouble areas or if they're could be a potential progression that would undermine the stability of either the spillway or the dam itself. Kenny explained how the information gathered in the field supports the technical analysis of the structure. In the office, we do a lot of structural analysis, finite element modeling for spillway gates and even spillways. And this kind of helps us identify stress concentrations for specific gates. If we're looking at normal loading conditions, which ones are overstressed, and that can give us a, a target to really do a focused in-depth inspection on those members since they're fracture critical or if we're seeing signs in the field of deformations relating it back to the stress analysis and, and trying to figure out why that's happening. If there's a deformation in a flange, did something hit it or is the, the water surface elevation too high and, and overloading? The, the strut. With the added benefit of having the same people working on the analysis. The engineers and the EITs who are out in the field doing the inspection are actually the ones performing the analysis back in the office. So there's a transfer of information there that isn't lost because it's a one-to-one -one individual you know, doing it in the field or the office. Our folks are doing multi-purpose type projects where, you know, they're functioning as the inspectors and the engineers doing the analysis, and that's just a huge benefit. Travis noted, it also heightens the inspection team's awareness of what to look for when they're covering such a massive structure. Sometimes our inspections kind of need to evaluate on the fly. So having really qualified folks out there that have some background in the dam safety realm, understand the consequences when there are things going wrong and what to look for. It's kept us from missing things, I would say. And it's always a risk that we don't find something, but keeping your eyes open out there is really uh, part of the job. and and can change the course of the whole project. Even with all the preparation and the critical work to do, there's still a sense of adventure once a young engineer gets up on her first inspection. Jarlene recalls the feeling she had on her first big dam, the nearly 100-foot-high Williamson Dam in Cisco, Texas. Williamson Dam was really tall, <laughs> so I had that moment where I'm like, okay, I'm actually doing this, and this is really different from the training center, and it was pretty much the first time I got to inspect one of the dams that we do analysis in, 
the like stability analysis and then we work on so much. So that was like the first time I was out there and I got to actually like feel the size of the dam and this huge structure. Depending on the type of job, you can be up on the ropes for a long time, which requires some planning to stay fueled. Definitely some cliff bars. I try not to drink. It's like a, a battle of staying hydrated and not drinking too much because using the bathroom for me is a little more work. <laughs> so Gatorade for sure. I somehow always manage to get some oranges. I sneak in some cookies in there too. <laughs> it's usually really hot. And a lot, when you're moving around a lot, it's just a matter of when you're going to get tired. Typically, technicians spend a lot longer time in the air on a bridge project, as Kenny experienced on an inspection of the Golden Gate Bridge. On the bridge side, it could be pretty difficult. You know, going back to the Golden Gate, we're only allowed to enter on one side and exit on one side. And so just doing a floor beam takes, I don't know, two to three hours. And then coming back, doing another floor beam takes two to three hours. And so that's why on the bridge side, you're usually taking food with you. So you could be suspended 12 hours. And so my lunch at Golden Gate consisted of a, a pack of raisins and a cliff bar. It's usually a slightly different story on a dam where you're in a remote location away from the public and descending down from the deck level. Travis is quick to point out the perks. Our lunches are definitely better on the, on dams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, on, on a bridge, you sort of get out there, you get traffic control, and it takes a while to get up on the structure, and you're sort of there quite a bit of the day. With dams, you know, we rappel down, and then we, we can hike back up to the deck, and we can just, you know, pull a cooler right out there under the deck, and we typically like to get some, you know, get the deli meat going, maybe some fancy cheeses, and get... <laughs> get uh get yeah. parked out there on the dam besides it's it's a beautiful area typically that we're in some you know canyon or something sometimes they do even better than that my lunch at lake matthews consisted of doordash where we got mediterranean food one day thai food the other day and it's always a running joke within the rope access program that the bridge guys kind of you know nudging us a little bit on how good our our lunches are but that doesn't stop travis from being creative on a bridge job i seem to remember one day we ordered pizza at a bridge and we had to get it sent up from a boat and the guy operating the boat threw the pizza like in a bag and then just like hoisted the bag to the rope uh, there was no preparation on delivery method there on on his part unfortunately and so we got the pizza at the top of the bridge <laughs> just a pile of pizza in addition to the fun stories about what they bring to lunch Mike has one involving what he brought to dinner. Once again, being a geologist, we're kind of out tromping around. So some of these spillways have little, you know, drainages on the side. And since I'm after the foundation conditions, I got to go poke my head around on the outside of the concrete. And sometimes that entails walking through some vegetation and picking up some travelers. There was that one time we were doing a, a job down on the coast here and there was a nice little stream some vegetation. I had sprayed myself with like the bug spray and everything. So I was like, all right, I'm feeling pretty good here. No snakes, you know, always got to watch out for snakes. And then we get to dinner later that night and I got a tick crawling around on my arm. And I remember we were sharing a table with like a couple, this was pre COVID and they noticed it like crawling down my arm and onto the table. And I think I ended up pulling like three of them off before I think I got all of them. So definitely the wildlife is something to keep an eye out for. In fact, Travis explained why a dam makes a perfect home for wildlife. 
My father was a wildlife biologist, so I have kind of affinity for critters out there and living in infrastructure. One of the first projects, Georgia Power, and there was so much water that was coming over the spillway gates or through the, you know, leaky old side seals. And at these hydropower plants, they want to keep the water as high as possible, right? So they can generate electricity. But it also means that there's lots of vegetation under there. So it can be like a jungle inside the girders. So we have some pretty spectacular documentation of vegetation within these, these gates, huge ferns and different things. Meaning the team needs to be prepared for a lot more than ticks. Whether it's snakes, so water moccasins like to be in that area in Georgia. So we got snakes on dams. And I know we've run into some raccoons and different things in there. I went into one area and saw a ringtail cat in Texas. And then uh, I know we've had some uh, run-ins with uh, raptors as well. So often we, if we find a big nest or something, we'll just avoid the area and try to come back when they're not nesting or something. But uh, they can get pretty ornery with us. They, they're sort of territorial and can, you know, uh, do a little bit of dive bombing, stuff like that. And then I, I know the Army Corps had a picture of a, a, a black bear on one of the big radial gates on the Columbia River. It was just perched up there on the, on the gate. The terrain itself around the dam can also add to the adventure, as well as the hazards, especially for the geologists. I'll say those the structural guys have it easy. Everything is all concrete and relatively flat and uh, I won't say smooth, but everything's kind of a little more manageable. Once you get over the edge of the concrete and onto some of these online portions or the abutments, I mean, you're dealing with all sorts of overhangs and craggy rocks, loose rocks. So it kind of, <laughs> it's not usually as steep, which ends up being a little trickier because you kind of, it's all about like rope management and trying not to step on stuff or hooking on things. And it's a little easier when everything's just kind of up and down and it all just falls to your side. When the water level at the dam is being kept high to provide hydropower, it can add additional excitement for the inspectors. What happens when the water near the top of the gates is that sometimes there can be some wind and what that causes is small waves. But when those small waves ride up on the gate, they can be like a wheelbarrow full of water. And if you're on the downstream side of the gate, given it was hot and it was kind of nice, you know, to get drenched every once in a while. But when you're in the middle of like riding a note and then get hit by like a wheelbarrow full of water, it can uh, kind of uh, shake you up a little bit. Kenny recalled a job where a new colleague started getting hit by the waves. I remember he found something and so he was trying to talk to me and it was literally every five seconds a bucket of water would land on him. And so you would say, hey, Kenny, blah, blah, blah. He, got, he got hit with a wave. I found something down here, and then he would get hit with a wave again. And he literally just had to move 15 feet so he could not get hit with a wave. But it, it took him a couple of minutes to figure that one out. So it's, it's pretty funny. But yeah, like Travis said, if it's hot, it actually feels pretty good. The actual work they're doing is interesting as well. In February 2017, the main spillway failed at California's Orville Dam, the tallest dam in the United States. The dam provides drinking water, hydroelectric power, and flood control near Folsom, California. Now the integrity of a major dam in California comes under threat after days of historic rainfall. He news in Northern California tonight, tens of thousands forced to evacuate tonight due to concerns the Oroville Dam's emergency spillway could fail. Time. The water was spilling over into this emergency or auxiliary spillway. About 3 o'clock uh, this afternoon, engineers who had been monitoring the situation there noticed that there was some sort of erosion on that emergency spillway. With water thundering out of Oroville Dam, officials are in a race to fix the damaged spillway. 
and lower the lake level, which is at near capacity. At one California point, officials said if that emergency spillway breached, a 30-foot wall of water could cascade into communities downstream. Now this is Kenny remembers the moment a colleague told him the news. He came to my office and he said, hey, Kenny, yeah, something's going on at the spillway. Can you grab some tools and meet me out there? And, you know, I, I, I had a bunch of questions and he was pretty much like, that, that's all the information I have. So bring whatever you think is necessary. And so I, I grabbed some tools or what I thought it was and drove out to the site. And as soon as I got there, I, I said, yeah, everything I brought is going to be useless. Rainfall had raised the water level in the lake and the heavy flow began to erode away the main spillway that controls flows downstream. It eventually created a 300 foot crater. After the California Department of Water Resources closed the spillway, the high water level overtopped the emergency spillway, which also began to erode. Concerned for a potential dam failure and catastrophic flood, the state evacuated 188,000 people from their homes. I was ultimately the first person that went down into the hole, and that was something that a lot of people will probably never get the opportunity to do again, and, you know, knock on wood, I'm not going to be able to do it again. But it was just fascinating at the amount of engineers who really took pride and wanted to develop plans to fix the spillway, you know, emergency action plans that were being developed real time and just working with a, a great number of folks here at HDR, at DWR, and a number of other consultants that were out there, you know, just really showed that the community, the engineering community came together. More than 50 HDR staff mobilized and began working alternating 12-hour shifts seven days a week to monitor and report on the condition of the spillway to help DWR form an emergency response. Travis was also among the first responders. Just walking the spillway in the middle of the night with a radio and a flashlight, and then the next day not knowing if they need us to go climb gates again. There was a dam downstream that we needed to go look at as well to make sure that was okay and just kind of being at the ready all the time. And Kenny and I were monitoring leads out there. So we'd have a team, a crew during a shift, and it was pretty pretty wild dynamic situation. The emergency response, temporary repairs, and reconstruction of the spillway eventually cost more than $1 billion. A greater catastrophe was averted, but it further highlights the importance of inspecting and maintaining infrastructure. Some small offset, like in a spillway with high-velocity flow, can be catastrophic when it comes to you know, the integrity of the structure. Oroville was an example of that. We don't know what kind of joint offset or anything it may have had, but one small defect became an unraveling there. I would say that, you know, during the inspection, sometimes we're there and I had an old slab and buttress dam and, you know, look at some rockfall issues and things. We started looking at the underlying buttresses of this Amberson style dam and they had some pattern cracking, some like shear type cracks. In. And then we also saw some issues with the outlet works where there were separated flanges in the, in the piping at high head situations. And yeah, just kind of unraveled some additional findings at the dam we're like you know what this needs a this needs a bigger look so we recommended you know a follow-up and then ultimately you know some interim risk assessment stuff as they plan to either uh, retrofit significantly or replace the dam the orville dam incident also caused dam owners and regulatory agencies to reassess their aging infrastructure. Where are spillway dams that are high risk? And uh, some of the dams that are over highly populated areas, we took a little more time with and did rope access inspections along with some ground
ground penetrating radar, and we used some pipe inspection methods to look at the drain systems underneath these spillways. So we really overlaid like a lot of different methods to try to find defects. Travis and Mike shared an example that they worked on in Southern California. I led a team doing rope access inspections of everything. We got essentially within arm's reach of all the components. So the, the spillway itself, you know, the gate structure, the, the walls on the sides, and we rigged ropes like horizontally to traverse and to get those. So we had to install some concrete anchors to do that. And then down at the flip bucket, we looked at that. Phase two was the destructive testing or drilling um, that we did. And so there's a big drilling program out on the emergency spillway, but also I think we ended up doing 20 some odd holes, 26 holes maybe in the service spillway. And these were targeting areas that were identified on the GPR results that uh, anomalies or areas that might, the slab might be a little thinner than design or maybe some delaminations or cracking. Kenny mentioned an inspection in the Pacific Northwest another job that helped avert more serious consequences. And basically we're inspecting the gates and we saw some, what Sam Plank actually said was one of the, one of the worst deformations he'd seen on a, on a strut arm. And so if one of those were to fail or become overly distorted, there could be a failure of your gate and an uncontrolled release of your reservoir. So you'd be losing a lot of water. And so we were awarded an emergency analysis contract where we did the finite element analysis of the gates and the core actually went in and did an emergency retrofit of those gates just because of the items that we saw in the field and how concerning they were. So it was it was really rewarding in the sense that, you know, our inspection findings led to a major finding that could have been disastrous and being able to be part of the team that developed the the retrofit plans and specifications, and ultimately got it constructed. With aging infrastructure, limited funding, and outside forces like climate change and increasing water demands, dam owners face mounting pressure to not only meet community needs, but to prevent a catastrophic failure. I think the realization is that a lot of our infrastructure is 50 to 100 years old, if not greater. So just understanding that all of these structures have a set lifespan, you can't expect things to last forever. So keeping up on proper maintenance or retrofits to at least extend the life, but ultimately at some point starting to think replacement, I think that's going to be one of the uh, the big items that will come up here in the future. Climate change specifically is changing the equation for which infrastructure was originally designed. We are updating potential maximum precipitation analyses, so essentially how much is a big storm going to generate, and then potential maximum flood routing, how much is this storm, what type of flood is it going to make, and is that going to jeopardize the dam, and how do we size for that? Those are all related to climate change and then also related to sea level rise. Mike said the convergence of many factors means the industry can't be comfortable with the status quo. There's definitely an intersection there between the age of our infrastructure and then some of these sort of larger forces at play, the climate change and whatnot. We could definitely stand a little more investment on that front, I think. And while fixing things and, and sort of maintaining what we've got is is good as we move forward too you you have to take into account some of these other forces like climate change so that you don't find yourself in a worse position um, than when you started and so 
there's going to be some pretty large implications. Travis cited a local project example. We've seen locally here in Colorado small watersheds that are show five times the potential flow than they did, you know, pre-fire. So we could get all kinds of debris and and it becomes a potential dam safety concern. I think one area it said the hydraulics on it said one over 70,000 chance of overtopping pre-fire. Post-fire it's about one over 500. So it, it can, you know, jump up pretty fast there in the, you know, how, how resilient these structures are when affected by a natural disaster. Kenny said all the work contributes to a bigger picture. There's a number of other analyses that go into this. There's potential failure modes. There's level two risk analyses. And so really a lot of the information that we're gathering out in the field are help feeding these other types of analyses. And I've said this to multiple clients and just even family members, the ultimate end game here is that we want the structure to be safe because it's protecting anywhere from one person to hundreds of thousands of people behind it. We're here to make sure that the, the structure is in adequate condition so those people feel safe. And so it always plays a role when we're out in the field. If something takes an extra two hours, let's get it done. If it's going to give us some answers or just make us feel more confident on the behavior of the structure. Mike offers an even more philosophical perspective. When it comes to the geology, usually we're talking time scales of several thousands of years to millions of years, right? And so how do you make that relevant to present day and, and some of these structures and the work we're doing? And so that's where I kind of also find some of the meaning and just acknowledging that the rocks are there to tell you a story, but we've engineered around it to provide these reservoirs for drinking water, irrigation, and all the folks downstream. So it kind of helps bring it full circle to, to why we do this kind of work and making sure that we've got safe and competent infrastructure. That role puts the rope access inspection team on the front line of dam safety every day. I guess the rope access team is sort of a infrastructure first response when it comes to imaged components. Being that trusted responder for clients when they need help as we pay dividends across the board, not only in more inspection work and stuff, but helping them respond to it in the long term. Jarlene recognizes the significance of that role every time she's on the job and discovers a crack, corrosion, or seepage that might tell a larger story. Like always inspecting with the thought of if you find a defect, like was this something that happened during construction or is this something that's happening because something's wrong with the structure? And if it is something wrong with the structure, what's causing it? Is it going to get worse over time? Like you just always go in there with the mindset of trying to figure out the issue and how to fix the issue and any potential risk that could happen. I think that's always in the back of my mind. For more information, visit hdrinc.com slash speakingofdesign. You'll find pictures, bios of our guests, and links to related articles. And be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.